Last week, we began studying the fall. In other words, the sin of Adam and Eve. And we got as far as verse number 5 before we ran out of time. So tonight, we're going to pick up where we left off. So if you would, turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Now let me kind of give you a little disclaimer here. We could probably spend all night tonight in verse number 6 and not cover it all. But I realize that I told you we're going to get through Genesis very quickly. Well, this is week 10, and we still haven't covered the fall yet. And we're not going to finish it tonight. So there are just certain things I have to leave out. And I want you to understand that. I mean, this is just packed full of so many good things. I told you that Genesis is probably the most important book in the Bible, and I truly believe that. Anyways, I want you to underline the word saw. And when the woman saw that the tree was good. Saw is translated from the Hebrew word ra'ah, and in this context it means to perceive. You see, Eve had allowed the serpent to change her perception of the tree. Instead of it being a tree to avoid because it was harmful, it became a tree to be desired. She had bought into the serpent's lie, hook, line, and sinker, and now perceived the tree to be good for food, pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. So at that point, she took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and she ate. And that was the very first sin. She disobeyed God. And she did what he commanded them not to. Now, someone asked my wife last Sunday if Eve's exaggeration was the very first sin. And the answer to that question is no. Who was the one that asked that question, by the way? That was a good question. Very good question. In fact, I've had two good questions. But she came home to me and she said, I didn't know what to say. He asked if Eve's exaggeration was the very first sin. Well, the answer to that question is no. And let me explain why I say that. Christian psychologists, not psychiatrists, psychologists have studied the story of Adam and Eve to learn about human nature. You see, psychology studies human behavior, particularly focusing on individual behavior. Uh, sociology, on the other hand, studies human behavior as it relates to societal behavior. So let me explain a little bit about human nature from a Genesis perspective. When God created Adam and Eve, he gave them the free will, but he also gave them unique personalities. Man was not created to be an automaton. In other words, a robot. So men not only have a free will, but they also have unique personalities, which means that we all see things from different perspectives. Therefore, we interpret things differently. How many of you have ever heard me make this comment? When it comes to interpersonal relationships, I don't deal with truth. I deal with people's perspective of truth. You ever heard me say that? Anyone? I can't believe that. I say that all the time. When it comes to interpersonal relationships, I don't deal with truth. I deal with people's perspective of truth. What I'm saying is that what someone thinks to be true might not be true. But from their perspective, it is true. Let me give an example. The University of Arkansas is twice the school that OU is. And that's the truth. 
Right, Doug? Right. But from your perspective, that's not true. From your perspective, OU is a better school than Arkansas is. And you think that way because you have emotional ties to that school. Even if you didn't go to that school, you know someone that did. Maybe mom did. Maybe grandma did. Maybe your kids did. Maybe you just love their football team. But you have this emotional tie to OU. So in interacting with you, I realize that I'm not dealing with the truth. I'm dealing with your perspective of truth. Now, does everyone know that I'm joking? I am joking. But I'm also trying to make a point. When it comes to interpersonal relationships, we don't deal with truth. We deal with people's perception of truth. Especially when it comes to subjective areas, to gray areas. Red is my favorite color. In fact, it's the best color. Well, it's the best color to you. Do you understand what I'm saying? Does everyone understand what I'm trying to say here? Good. Now, why is that what is it that way? Why do people have different perceptions of truth? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because a person's perception of truth isn't just based on the facts. It's also based on their emotions, personality, personal experiences, opinions, etc. And because God did not create us to be robots, but he created us to be unique creatures with different personalities, different temperaments, different emotions, etc. We're going to see things differently. In other words, we're going to have different perspectives on things which isn't necessarily wrong. It's only wrong when our perception is different than God's. If God specifically states a fact, and we believe otherwise, then we're wrong. But it doesn't mean on certain things, if he didn't state that, that our perspective is wrong or your perspective is wrong. Now, let me relate this to Adam and Eve. God told Adam and Eve that they could eat from any tree in the garden with one exception. They could not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And if they did, on that day they would surely die. Now, God did not prohibit Adam and Eve from touching the tree. He didn't say, you can't touch it. But from God's prohibition, they perceived that the tree was potentially dangerous, that it was harmful, and rightly so. If they ate of it, they would die. So they wisely realized that they shouldn't flirt with the danger, and it would be to their best interest to keep their distance and not even touch it. You know, we have to tell our teenagers, God says that premarital sex is wrong, and they always want to know, okay, what's sex? How far can I go? So basically, we go to the book of Solomon, and we explain what God means by sex. And then they want to know, well, okay, is this okay? And we start trying to explain to them that, you know, you could get into danger. Let's not flirt with it. Let's not play with fire. So Adam and Eve, in the same instance, realized that they shouldn't flirt with danger. And it would be to their best interest to keep their distance and not even touch it. So from Eve's perspective, she shouldn't and couldn't touch it. So when she told the serpent, God hath said you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it. Technically, it was an exaggeration. The word exaggerate means to overstate. And that's exactly what Eve did. 
Eve overstated. She attributed her own prohibition to God and overstated what God had said. But her exaggeration wasn't a lie. Because from her perspective, God was saying, stay away from the tree. It's dangerous. It will hurt you. So her exaggeration wasn't necessarily a lie. It was simply her perspective of truth. From her perspective, that's what God was saying. Stay away from the tree. But her personality had a lot to do with the way she interpreted what God said. Now, as I previously stated, Christian psychologists have studied this story to learn more about human behavior, more about human nature. And what they've learned is that we all have the tendency to do this. All humans have the tendency to exaggerate. Our personality, emotions, personal experiences, etc. have a lot to do with the way that we see things. And if we don't like something, we tend to exaggerate the truth from our perspective. We tell our version of the truth from our perspective. But what we exaggerate reveals a lot about what's in our heart. It reveals a lot about our emotions. It reveals a lot about our perspective. You know, when I come home and I say, you wouldn't believe what Drew said to me. And I start saying it. You know, it's interesting how I change the inflection. I change the tone. I might even change the way it was said in the order. And in a sense... I'm exaggerating, but not in my mind. In my mind, I'm telling you the truth because this is the way that I perceived it. But it's based upon my personal experiences, my opinions, my perspective, my emotions, my personality, all of those type of things. But here's what's interesting. The way we exaggerate things gives us a lot of insight into the way you think. Insight into certain things that might have happened in your past, your personality. So when we study Adam and Eve and we see her exaggerate, we also see how she perceived what God said. But it also reveals what was in her heart. She didn't like it that God told her. You can eat of any tree but not this tree. Well, what's so special about this tree? Why can't we do from this tree? There's already just a hint of irritation. Now, that irritation isn't wrong. Her personality was probably choleric, and she knows she just wants to take charge and do this. Mm -hmm. But then she also realized, because of her personality, it's dangerous. We shouldn't even touch it. And she perceived it to be that way. So basically, even though she exaggerated, I want you to understand it was not the first sin. But it did reveal what was in her heart, and it allowed the serpent to come in and play on that. Now, you need to understand as we begin to make application that Satan knows you. He knows what your personality is like. He knows what your temperament is. He knows how emotional you are and what makes you emotional and what doesn't make you emotional. He knows what pulls your strings. He knows the personal experiences that you've had in the past. And now he's able to come in. And guess what? He's able to tempt you based upon those things. And it's not necessarily wrong that you have these perspectives or this perception of things. But we must understand that we have to come back to God's word and not allow him to play on that. Because if God has specifically stated that something is wrong, 
if we have a different perspective from God on those things that he stated, we're wrong. But on other things, it's just basically our perspective. But Satan knows how to play on those things. Does that make sense? If it doesn't, come back to me. We'll talk a little bit more about it, but I'm not sure that I can do any better than that. I hope I answered the question that you have. But let's get back to the story, all right? So when Eve perceived that the tree was good, good for food, pleasant to the eye, and able to make a person wise, she ate of it. And that was the very first sin. Now, where was Adam when all of this was taking place? He was either right next to her or very close watching all of this take place. Now, how do we know that? Well, turn back to verse number 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. Notice that after Eve ate the fruit, she gave it to Adam who was with her. Do you see that phrase? With her? This tells us that Adam was either standing very close to her or he was so close she could turn and say, come on over here. He could watch all of these things. Not only that, when the servant, serpent is speaking to the woman in verses 1 through 5, he continually uses the plural term for you, indicating that he is addressing both of them. Let me give you just two examples of this. In verse number 1, it says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now, he's speaking to Eve. But the word ye there is plural in the Hebrew grammar. It's written in such a way that it cannot be translated singularly. It is plural. He's talking to both of them. Now look in verse number 5. For God doth know that in the day that you eat of it, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as God's doing good and evil. The word you in both of those places and your are plural in the Hebrew. He was not speaking just to Eve. He was speaking to both of them, but he was directing it towards Eve. And what's kind of interesting is, and this gives us insight into the New Testament. Remember when Paul was writing and he said, Adam was not deceived, but Eve was? I'm paraphrasing. Do you remember that? We think, why did he say that? What he basically was telling us is Adam and Eve... We're sitting there together listening to this. But Eve is the one that said, Ooh, the tree looks good for this. And da 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 And Adam still hasn't bought it until Eve eats of it. And then he doesn't want to be left behind. Well, we're getting ahead of ourselves. But this tells us, when we look at just the Hebrew grammar and we look at that phrase, with her, that Adam was either standing right next to her or he was so close that she could turn and give him the fruit. And he ate of it. And now they both sinned. Verse 7. And the eyes of them both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Now, just as soon as they ate of the tree, their eyes were opened. Just as the serpent had predicted back in verse number 5. 
Now remember in verse number 5, the serpent said, God knows that the day that you eat this, your eyes will be opened. And sure enough, just as the serpent predicted, their eyes were opened. But it wasn't what they expected. You know, sometimes the promise of sin comes true. But it wasn't the promise we expected. It didn't turn out like we thought it would. How many has ever seen the uh, John Belushi movie? And the John Belushi movie where I think it, it's, it's about baseball. And in his high school year, they were in the state playoffs. And they came to the championship game and he struck out. And if he'd have just hit the ball. Anyone ever seen that movie? Great movie. So he gets a chance. This person comes in. He's able to turn back time. And he says, okay, I can change this instead of missing the baseball, and this is what happened, the, the uh, pitch, this is what happened to your life. Instead, you hit the ball, and you made a home run, and you won the game. Now, this is what happened in your life. And he's able to change things. And now he's living the life that he always wanted until he finds out it's horrible. And he really had such a great life. And you know, sometimes what we expect to happen it happens, but it's not what we expected. Now, wait a minute. You're saying something totally different. Yes and no. They expected for their eyes to be open, and their eyes were open, but it was not what they expected because they expected to acquire this great wisdom and to become like gods. Instead, their eyes were opened to what they had done, and an awful sense of shame enveloped them. And for the first time, they really realized they were naked. Now, I'm sure they weren't blind to that fact before. But their eyes were open, and there's a lot of, of meaning that we could pull out of that. We could go look at other scriptures, but we would probably spend two weeks truly trying to discern what it means that their eyes were open. But basically, they saw things differently. Their eyes were open that they were naked, and that took on a whole new meaning. Now, I usually, I shouldn't say that, most of the time I try to refrain from my personal opinion. Basically, all I want to do is to pull out what the Word of God says and say this is what God's Word says and state it as an authority, uh, authoritative fact. But every once in a while I give my opinion. So tonight I'm going to give you my opinion. I personally believe that even though Adam and Eve were physically naked in the Garden of Eden, they were clothed with the glory of righteousness before they sinned. And I'll show you why I believe that. Isaiah chapter 61, verse number 10 says, I am overwhelmed with joy in the Lord my God, for he has dressed me with the clothing of salvation and draped me in a robe of righteousness. I'm like a bridegroom in his wedding suit or a bride with her jewels. And so he's giving this picture of God coming in and draping us in a robe of righteousness. Then, on the Mount of Transfiguration, we get a little insight into what happened to Jesus. Jesus' face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. In other words, it's almost as if he was not wearing clothes, as if he just turned this light and they were just shining there's just this image there and boy it's can't hardly see it turn with me if you would to the book of Matthew chapter 17 verses 1 through 3 
Six days later, Jesus took Peter and the two brothers, James and John. That's the three. Remember, Jesus hung out with three more than he did the four, and with four more than he did the 12, and with the 12 more than he did the 70, and the 70 with, you get the picture. And Jesus had those that were tighter with him, closer to him. And there was one that he hung out with more and loved more than anyone else. Who was that? John. And of course, John had to always rub it into people. John's writing in his gospel and he's writing in other places and he would say, and the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, you know that really irked Peter. It really did. Because at one point, when he's telling Peter what kind of death he's going to suffer, what does Peter do? Well, what about him, Lord? And he points to John. Why does he do that? Because he knows Jesus and John are like this. Does that make sense? So Jesus actually hung out with John more than he did the three. He hung out with the three more than he did the four. And he hung out with the four more than he did the 12. And the 12 more than the 70. But here he takes the three. He takes Peter and James and John. And he led them up to a high mountain to be alone. As the man watched, or as the men watched, Jesus' appearance transformed. Now, I don't think we really realize what this is saying. Jesus' appearance changed. Totally different. So that his face shone like the sun. Now, can you look at the sun? Let's be honest. You can, but what happens if you do? It's blinding. It will literally blind you. But his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became as white as light. Almost like you could see through it. It's just light. It's just this figure. Wow. Suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. Which is kind of neat because, I'll be honest with you. Peter, James, and John have never met Elijah and Moses. They don't know what they look like. They didn't have TV, so they didn't know Moses looked like Charlton Heston. Right? But immediately when he appears, guess what takes place? They know. This is Moses. This is Elijah. You know what that tells me? Because I'm going to know as I'm known that when I go to heaven, I'm going to know my grandpa. I've never met him. He died before I was ever born. But when I get to heaven, I'm going to say, that's my grandpa. I'm going to know who Elijah is and Moses. I don't have to have a picture of them. I'm going to know that. And, and they knew. They supernaturally knew. These are the people. But Jesus was transformed. And I'm reminded of Moses. When Moses was in the presence of God on Mount Sinai, he was up there for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was fasting. He came down, and he had the two tables of stone. His face shone like the sun, just like Jesus did by being in the presence of God. Turn to Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 through 30. Now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him, talked with God. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, because now he has this after effect. He's no longer in the presence of God. But he's coming from the presence of God. And it's had such an effect on him. His face is still shining. Behold the skin of his face shone. And they were afraid to come near him. Is he a ghost or what? There is something different. Because he's in the presence of God. It was so bright. That Moses had to wear a veil. 
But in order for the people to know that he'd been in the presence of God and that when he gave them certain information, it was from God, when he would go in to see God, he would take the veil off. And he would be in the presence of God and it would change his countenance. It would change his appearance. And so he would come out and he would say, this is what God says. And they knew that it was from God by his appearance. And then after he did that, he'd put the veil on because, you know, after a while, you just can't take that anymore. Look in Exodus chapter 34, verses 34 through 35, just in case you think I'm making all this up. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out. So he would take this veil off because he's in the presence of God. Why would you have to be veiled? And he would come out and he would speak to the children of Israel, whatever he had been commanded and whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put, put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. In other words, he went in to speak with God. So he'd come out, they'd see the face, oh, he's been in the presence of God. He'd say what he meant to, then he'd put the veil on. So I personally believe that before Adam and Eve sinned, they were naked. But they were also clothed with the glory of God's righteousness. They were also in the presence of God. They fellowshiped with God. They walked with God. And, and it changed the appearance. It's not something that you would even notice that they're naked. Because they're clothed with righteousness. They're clothed with the glory of God. But once they ate of the forbidden fruit, the glory of righteousness that had clothed them faded away. And their eyes were opened. Mm -hmm. And they realized, my gosh, Eve were naked. And that's why they were ashamed. Now, I'm not saying they weren't physically naked. Yes, they were. But there was something different about them. And, and, and so when their eyes were opened and all of a the sudden they could see, I think if the thing is, they realized that, ooh, that glory of righteousness is gone. Now, let me kind of explain why else I believe this. When we're raptured, are we going to be naked? Well, you're going to be perfect without any guilt and shame. So are you going to be naked in heaven? Is everyone going to walk around naked in heaven? No. No, all of you who came to the book of Revelation should say no. We're going to be clothed in fine white linen. That will show our righteousness. And it will be shining and bright. We are clothed in heaven. And yet, we're righteous and pure and holy, so we wouldn't have any of these evil thoughts anyway. But I'll just be honest with you. I thank God it's going to be that way. There's some of you I don't want to see. But anyways, <laughs> whoo, you know what I'm talking about. But we're going to be clothed in heaven. So, you know, I'm thinking about this with Adam and Eve. If we're going to be clothed in heaven, you know, if we're going to be restored to the way it was before the fall, then why in the world will we be wearing clothes if everything's restored? Because that's the way God has it. I think in the beginning when it's telling us that Adam and Eve were naked, well, there wasn't anyone running around. There wasn't anyone but Adam and Eve and God. Now, it kind of reminds me of the movie Failure to Launch. How many of you saw the movie Failure to Launch? Terry Bradshaw was in the movie Failure to Launch, and he had, once he got the kid out of the house, a naked room. And remember, his wife said it's contained to the naked room. Well, you know, one of the great things about, my wife's going to go, oh. 
One of the great things about being an empty nester is that you can actually have a naked house. You know, that's just the way it is. Why? Because no one else is around. The kids are gone. But when the kids come home, I understand Terry Bradshaw. You remember the movie, sitting at the kitchen table and everyone's back. And he goes, boy, it's hot in here. Like he should take off his shirt. And his wife says, leave that shirt on. The kids are around. But my thought is this, Adam and Eve were naked, it's in the beginning and there's no kids around, so you know it's okay, and it's going. But I'm sure had they not fallen once they started having kids, they would have been clothed anyway. Does that make sense? But I think we come in and we have this perception that the only reason, you know, they were naked, they would have continued to be naked if they had never fallen. I, I don't believe that simply because, and again, I'm giving my personal opinion, it's because when we go to heaven, the Bible clearly states that we're going to be clothed and not just with righteousness, but with fine white linen, physically clothed. All right? But this was something that in the very beginning, it's just them, they're with God, there's nothing to be ashamed of. But once the eyes are opened, Boom. Oh my gosh. These thoughts, these feelings, these... But I also believe that that glory from being in the presence of God was gone. And you could physically see it also. And I'll explain why as we go to verses 8 and 9. Verse 8. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. God among, from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. As soon as they heard God walking toward them. Now, again, in the King James Version, it says, and they heard the voice of the Lord God walking. Now, the word voice there actually is the Hebrew word that means sound. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the day. So as soon as they heard God walking toward them, fear gripped them and they tried to hide from God. Now, people, I can relate to this. And I'll tell you why. My, my wife was a perfect child from what they tell me. She got spanked one time in school and it wasn't even her fault. And she's embarrassed that I'm even telling you she got spanked. And I'm kind of like, that's a miracle. You know, I got spanked every day in first grade. I got spanked in kindergarten. Did you ever hear the story about how I broke in a first-year school teacher, a first-year kindergarten school teacher? I got in trouble, and I was told to stand outside in the hallway. So I went outside to stand in the hallway, and I waited, and I waited, and I, and I thought I waited probably 30 minutes to an hour, but now that I look back, probably was about two minutes, and the teacher didn't come out, and I got curious. What's down that hallway? I've never gone down that hallway. So I started going down the hallway. And I started looking in rooms. And then there was this room. Now, now looking back, I realized that it was a teacher's lounge. But inside there was a pop machine. And it was the old type of pop machine. kind of looked like a freezer. And you'd open it up and all the pop were in there. And there was this free pop. So I grabbed out a grape crush. Or back then it was grapeette. And I pulled it out and I popped it. I sat down on the couch and started drinking it. <laughs> and pretty soon I hear this. Alan! Alan! I'm thinking, who is that? 
And boy, I keep hearing this running. And finally, this teacher in front of the home, she looks at me. Ah! She never again sent a teacher into the, uh, sent a student into the hallway. <laughs> Not to be unsupervised by himself. Now, I, I bring this up just to let you know. I didn't mean when I was growing up to get into trouble, but my mom always said this, and you can ask her. If I was quiet and she could not hear me, you went to check on me. That, that was just the rule. Mom, is that true? That's true. So I could really relate to Adam and Eve when they heard God walking toward them that fear gripped them and they ran. Because when I was young, I did a few things that I shouldn't have done. And most of the time, I had partners in crime. In other words, my friends would right, right along with me. But I remember one particular time when we broke a window of a neighbor's house. And we all just kind of stood there until we heard the door open and we heard what we thought was an adult coming. And then everyone scattered. It was just a natural reaction. Anyone, do, do you remember doing that? Doing something you weren't supposed to? It was like... And then all of a sudden, I don't know if someone says run or what, but all of a sudden you think someone's coming. And I mean, you just scatter. Natural reaction. And that's how I picture Adam and Eve. They eat at the forbidden fruit and their eyes are open, but not in a good way. And they immediately realize, we screwed up. And then they hear God coming. Fear grips their heart. And they scatter. People, it's a natural reaction. And it's going to be that way at the great white throne judgment. It's human nature. This is why Christian psychologists love to study the story of Adam and Eve. Because that's how you learn human nature. What Adam and Eve did, we do as humans. And we're going to do that, not we, because we're saved, so we won't be at the great white throne judgment. We'll be at the beta seat of Jesus. We're going to be at the judgment seat of Jesus to see what rewards we receive. But there's no judgment. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So even though we're not going to receive condemnation, we still have to be judged for what we've done in this body because we're saved by grace, but we're rewarded by what? Works. So we're going to stand before Jesus to be judged in order to receive our rewards. But those who aren't saved are going to be condemned and they're going to stand before the great white throne judgment of God. The great white throne. And there's going to be a book that's open, which is the book of life. And those who are not written in the book of life are going to be judged by the things written in the books. Everything they've ever done, they're going to have to give an account for. And they're going to be punished for everything. But the reason we're not going to be punished is because Jesus blotted out the handwriting of ordinance that was against us. Everything you've ever done wrong, we accepted Jesus Christ. It says, pay for. But those who are not saved are going to stand before him. And guess what they're going to want to do? They're going to want to hide. Look at Revelation 20, 11. And I saw a great white throne in him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. Now, when it says, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled, it's talking about men and fallen angels. Men from earth and the fallen angels from heaven. Everyone, even the angels that fell, are going to have to stand before God to be judged. And they're going to want to run from God. They're going to want to hide from God. But there's no place to go because you can't hide from God. What Adam and Eve didn't realize, they're running and hiding, but there was no place to hide. I can almost remember being a kid, and I always wondered, how did your mom and dad always found you? 
Or they knew that you got in the cookies. And I, you know, when I had kids, I figured it out. The cookie crumbs were all over them, you know, and you could see the lid was off the cookie jar. And you're going, have you been in the cookie jar? No. I think you've been in the cookie jar. And you're, when you're a kid, you're like, how did you know? But God is that way. He knows everything. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He knows everything. He's all-powerful. And so you can't hide from God. And neither could Adam and Eve. But it's natural, it's natural reaction to do that. It's human nature to try. Verse 9. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where are you? Or King James, where art thou? Now, at this point, I want you to notice that God is only confronting Adam. God called unto Adam. God called unto Adam. And he said unto him, where art thou? The term him is written as second person masculine singular in the original Hebrew manuscript. Masculine. Not her. Where are you? N- neutral both. No. Where are you? Where, where are you? And he said unto him. Original Hebrew manuscript is masculine. So is thou. So God is only addressing Adam at this point. Now why is that? It's because Adam is ultimately responsible as the head of the family. And that's a good lesson for us men. You know, many times we want to blame our wife. We want to blame the family, the pressure, all of those things. But I want you to understand something. As the head of the house, one day you stand before God. Because you are the person who's placed in authority. Now, we're not the Lord over that. And there are times, many times, as I've taught, that we submit unto our wife. And God wants us to do that. But then there are other times... When it comes to important spiritual decisions, as the men of the house, we take responsibility for our family. And so God speaks, and he goes directly at Adam. Now, the question that God asked Adam is rhetorical, because God knew exactly where Adam was hiding. As I said, people, it's, it's impossible to hide from God. So when God asked Adam, where are you? He was simply giving Adam the opportunity to come out of hiding and to admit what he'd done. Verse 10. And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Now, the normal word order in Hebrew is verb, subject, object. Let me see if I can explain what I mean by that. I'm sure there's other foreign languages that are like this. Greek is a little bit different. Greek, it really doesn't matter what the word order is because the suffixes tell you whether it's nominative case, uh, genitive case, ablative case, locative case, instrumental case, dative case, accusative case. So it really doesn't matter. You can just scatter them everywhere. But you'll put, put your words in a certain order if you want to emphasize things. Well, in Hebrew... There's a specific word order unless you want to emphasize something. And the specific word order in Hebrew is verb, subject, object. So if you want to say the man ran to town, you would say ran the man to town. The verb goes first, the subject goes second, the object goes third. Hmm. But in Adam's response, the object of the sentence, your voice, appears first in the sentence and it's placed there for emphasis what Adam is saying 
What this is implying is that God's voice is what scared him, and that's why he's hiding. Now, remember the word voice before then was the sound of God coming? But he's here saying, the sound of you, the voice of you, God, it scared me. That's why I'm hiding. Now, God's voice had never scared Adam before. But now, for the first time, Adam realizes he's naked. That's why God's voice scared him. And I can understand that. Growing up, my dad's voice never scared me. Unless I did something I shouldn't have done. And then, just the sound of my dad coming gripped me with fear because my dad could spank. He spanked with a belt. And that was a good thing and it was a bad thing. It was a good thing because when my dad said jump, I asked how high. It was a bad thing because when I went to school, spankings meant nothing. Those ladies would take you outside in the hallway and say, all right, lean over three licks. <sighs> Is that all you got? Now, you didn't say that because then they would take you to the principal's office and there was always a man there. But, you know, I'd always see these guys coming in crying from the teacher and I think, good God, you got to get whipped by my dad. This is nothing. But anyways, when I got in trouble and I heard my dad coming, Fear would grip me, and I wanted to hide, or I wanted to hide what I had done. And that was Adam. Adam wanted to hide what he'd done, and the thing that he looks like is, ooh, I can't hide what I've done because God will see I'm naked. And that's another reason why I think the glory of God had disappeared. The radiance that came from being in his presence was gone, and he knew God can see. This. It's kind of like you've done something and they're coming and you want to start trying to hide it and you realize he'll be here before I can hide it. And that was Adam. And so, boy, you know, they made these aprons, but still it's not good enough. So they get behind and they hide. So I completely understand Adam's fear. I understood why he hid. He was afraid. Verse 11, we're going to, we got to get through this because next week I have to do the curse. And he said, who told thee that thou was naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree? Where have I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? Now, these aren't the question, questions of someone who doesn't know what's going on. Does that make sense? In fact, the second question that he asked, have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you not to, uh, not to eat from? It's written in such a way that in the Hebrew, it means that God already knows what happened. In fact, I'll be honest with you, I couldn't find a really good translation of this. So I'm going to just tell you what a better translation would have been. That would have been closer to what it actually says in the original Hebrew manuscripts. You've eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to, haven't you? And you know, when I saw this, it was like, that's my dad. You did something wrong, he would come in and he'd go, you drove the car when I told you not to, didn't you? It's really not a question. He knows. You know he knows. Everyone knows he knows. But the reason he's asking that is, I'm giving you a chance to come clean. I'm giving you a chance to either lie or tell the truth. And that was the reason that God asked it this way. is because he's trying to get Adam to come clean. He's trying to get Adam to confess 
his sin. And again, this is a great lesson on human nature. Because for some reason, man does not like to admit his guilt. We're wrong, we know we're wrong. Lisa knows I'm wrong. My kids know I'm wrong. It still will take 24 hours before I finally come and say I'm wrong. I'm just teasing. Now, I've come to this very quickly that I'm wrong. But anyways, we don't like to say we're wrong. Instead, we want to blame others or we want to make excuses. But let me give you a principle here. If you're taking notes, write this down. There can't be true repentance without confession. And that's why God keeps pushing the issue. So what does Adam do when push comes to shove? God is asking him, but he's asking him in such a way that I already know, son. I'm not going to do any good to lie. Who told you you were naked? You ate from the tree that I commanded you not to, didn't you? And then what does he do? He blames Eve and he blames God. Look at verse 12. And the man said, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. It's the woman's fault, God. And if you want to get technical, God, you're the one who gave me the woman. So technically, God, you're also to blame. Because if you hadn't given me the woman, then I wouldn't have sinned. Now, can you see why Christian psychologists love to study the story of Adam and Eve? If you want to learn about human nature, study the story of the fall. It's the ultimate lesson on human nature because we all do these things.